Hi, everybody. Liam here. Just real quick before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that tickets for my boat tours are available now. There are two routes. One trip goes north to Richmond. The other goes south to Oakland. And they're both really fun. Uh, if you want more details, check out the article on my website called What I Learned from a Year on the Bay. It's a reflection on how my perspective about studying local history has been affected by taking groups of people out to share stories out on the water. You can find that at eastbayyesterday.com. And I should warn you that a few of the dates have already sold out. So if you want to come, don't sleep on getting those tickets. Okay, thanks again to all the Patreon supporters keeping the show alive. You guys are incredible. Now, on with the program. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. It's 1949, and a black man walks into a hotel in Sacramento just a few blocks from the state capitol building. Before the black man can even mention that he's made a reservation, the white hotel clerk tells him, sorry, there's not any rooms left. The black man immediately knows what's up, so he goes outside to a phone booth and calls the hotel. When the clerk answers, the man says, hi, I just want to check on my reservation. The name is Byron Rumford. The clerk says, yeah, the room's waiting for you whenever you get here. So the black man walks back into the hotel, tells the clerk that he knows there's a room there under his name, Byron Rumford, and asks to check in. Again, the clerk says, oh, so sorry, you're gonna have to leave. We actually don't have a room for you. But Byron Rumford was not the type of guy to back down. He tells the clerk, listen, I've just been elected to the California legislature, and as soon as I start my new job tomorrow, I'm going to get to work writing laws to make sure that you can't do this to me or any other black folks ever again. Byron Rumford ended up getting that room he'd booked, and he ended up writing those laws too. He did a lot of things coming up, you know, even boxing, and he was a fighter. He was a fighter. He was a fighter. And he really didn't receive defeat. He just kept fighting. That is Byron Rumford's grandson. I am William Byron Rumford III, uh, born in Berkeley in mid-50s, 55. And um, I've lived here all my life. A few years before Byron III was born, during the 1940s, you would have seen signs in some Berkeley shops that said things like, no Negroes. But thanks to early civil rights activists, those signs and a lot of the other really obvious displays of racism were starting to disappear by the 1950s. Discrimination was still everywhere. It was just slightly less visible than a sign hanging in a window. Here's Oakland's former mayor, Elihu Harris, who grew up in Berkeley during this era. 
Berkeley was a segregated community uh, in every way you can imagine. All the black folks in Berkeley lived in South or West Berkeley. Uh, they had all the covenants for uh, restrictive housing and, uh, and certainly discrimination and employment. And quite frankly, Sacramento Street was really the line. There were very few blacks who lived above Sacramento Street and none, none lived above Shattuck. And a lot of people, until they were confronted with the reality of racism and economic oppression, refused to admit that it even existed. And California didn't recognize itself as racist uh, in any way, but certainly it was. That quote was taken from a documentary about Byron Rumford's life called Fair Legislation. It focuses on the Rumford Fair Housing Act, which was designed to outlaw housing discrimination so that people of color could live wherever they wanted. And the film also shows how as soon as Rumford's Fair Housing Act passed in 1963, there was a huge backlash in the form of Prop 14. This was a ballot initiative that was developed to essentially wipe out the Rumford Act and make housing discrimination legal again. Ronald Reagan was the spokesman for the Prop 14 campaign. This is the very first line in the Byron Rumford documentary. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. That voice belonged to Bull Connor. You might think that starting a film about a California civil rights pioneer with a quote from a notorious Alabama segregationist is kind of a weird choice, but I think it's brilliant. When I talked with the director of the Rumford documentary, Doug Harris, I told him why. One of the reasons I, I appreciated that Bull Connor quote about this kind of overtly racist guy saying you need to keep the blacks and whites separate is because the pro Prop 14 people that wanted to repeal the Rumford Act, most of them weren't as upfront about their racism. They were saying, oh, this is about personal liberty. This is about protecting property values. But, you know, you peel back those arguments and at the core of it, it's, it's racism, right? So in a way, the Bull Connor quote is kind of honest perspective, even though it's disgusting and appalling, at least he was being honest about what his motivations were as opposed to the Ronald Reagans of the world. Yeah, and you're absolutely right, because Southern racism has a more, you know, it's more direct and you know it and you feel it and you see it versus some of the racism that existed here in California was a little bit more covert. It was kind of disguised. You know, it still exists today, but, you know, we have to constantly chip away at it. These racist things that are happening, and in particular with housing. Everybody knows that the Bay Area is in the middle of a massive housing crisis. One of the factors of this crisis is displacement. As prices continue to go up, more and more black and brown people who have lived here for generations are driven out. At the same time, there's been a kind of reverse white flight with towns like Berkeley becoming more racially and economically homogenous. What we're seeing is the resegregation of California. Some folks say that this is just an issue of supply and demand. Build more housing. Prices will go down. Voila, problem solved. But that totally ignores the fact that the kind of racism that Byron Rumford fought against never really went away. It just got better at hiding. According to the Center for Investigative Reporting, quote, 
a new epidemic of modern-day redlining has crept quietly across America. The gap in home ownership between African Americans and whites is now wider than it was during the Jim Crow era. Wow, more than half a century after the passage of the Civil Rights Act that was supposed to end housing discrimination. The problem is getting worse in some ways. I could throw a bunch of statistics at you right now, but anybody who's been around the Bay Area for the last decade or two and had their eyes open knows exactly what I'm talking about. Plus, numbers alone won't give you the whole story. For people like Doug Harris, this is personal. This particular film was a manifestation of a project that my mom encouraged me to produce. My mom was just on me about producing this story because it was so uh, important to our family. I grew up in, in North Berkeley in an area that was restricted up until the Fair Housing Act. And so my mom credits Byron Rumford's legislation as uh, the reason for her to be able to purchase her first home in North Berkeley. Byron Rumford thought that his legislation and the national legislation it helped inspire would create more racial equality in the housing market. So what went wrong? One of the things that we can do is just look back and see where we've come from and how we got to this point. Because unless we really have an understanding of what happened and how we got here, there's really no type of way we can fix things. Today on East Bay Yesterday, we're going to find out what Byron Rumford's story can tell us about why racism and real estate are so hard to untangle. I'm your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Stay tuned. Byron Rumford was born in Arizona in 1908. His first exposure to activism probably came from his grandma, who protested when the school district where they lived decided to start segregating students by race. She knew that the black schools would be shoddy and underfunded, and she was right. Byron learned early on that separate but equal, the legal doctrine that the U.S. Supreme Court used to justify segregation, was a myth, a lie. In reality, separate never meant equal. But even though his school lacked basic facilities, Byron worked hard so he could come to California and continue his education, which was pretty unusual for back then. You got to think back, you know, we're talking about back in the 1930s during the Depression. This was, this was a tough time for everyone, let alone a black man. And then in particular here in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, we're talking before the great migration of black people. Even as late as 1940, Alameda County's black population was less than 3%. And most employers simply refused to hire African Americans for anything other than manual labor or servant-type jobs. This is why it was so hard for Byron to get hired, even after he graduated from college. After several humiliating rejections, he got a job in Oakland, where he became the first black pharmacist at Highland Hospital. 
he finally broke through. But one of the things I think that happened is that those tough dealings with employment in those early years made it so that Byron Rumford felt that he was going to have to make his way owning his own business. And so he eventually ended up purchasing a, a, a pharmacy on Sacramento Street in Berkeley and found his way as an entrepreneur. The location of this pharmacy ended up playing a big role in Byron's rise as a community leader. Again, here's his grandson, Byron III. Sacramento Street, I, I equate with with Harlem. It was just a, a variety of black-owned businesses down there, Asian-owned businesses as well. It, everybody seemed to know everybody. And... Um, Although there was gambling on the street and all, all the things that come along with the neighborhood, I felt really comfortable down there. And here's Dotson Wilson, who also grew up in Berkeley and recently retired after serving 40 years in the California State Assembly. He remembers back when Sacramento Street was the main corridor of Berkeley's black community. My mother taught at Longfellow, and we would sometimes go down to the pharmacy or whatever. And I remember people saying, yeah, when you went into the Rumford Pharmacy, you knew that you didn't have to worry about being accused of stealing something if you didn't steal something. So his pharmacy not only became a a successful business, but it was also a a focal point and, and a place for people to congregate. So how did so many black folks end up in South Berkeley? Doug Harris covers this in his documentary. I'd like to take a step back a little bit to kind of explain the whole paradigm where, uh, about how the blacks came to Berkeley. And it was uh, unveiled in this documentary through one of our great Bay Area journalists, Belva Davis. Uh, in the documentary film, in her interview, she spoke about how when the Japanese were interred during World War II, that opened up, that freed up a lot of housing, and that's where the blacks who came in from the South, they kind of moved into the homes that were uh, left by the Japanese, and then that's how uh, there became a black population, a heavy black population in Berkeley. If you want more details on that, check out episode 18 of this podcast, which is about Fred Korematsu. But that's a very different story of institutional racism. Back to this one. When Byron Rumford wasn't running his store, he was busy in the early civil rights movement. He joined the NAACP and other local groups that were fighting against employment discrimination. From the University of California on down to the corner grocery store, they used their growing numbers to pressure these employers into finally hiring black folks. Long story short, in 1948, a state assembly position opened up to represent parts of Berkeley and West Oakland, and African-Americans finally had enough voters in the district to elect one of their own. Byron Renford managed to come out on top and and win that election, which which made him the first legislator in in, in Northern California's history, African-American legislator. Just a few years earlier, the idea of a black man holding an elected statewide office would have been almost unimaginable. But the civil rights era was dawning, 
and hopes for the future were high. Before we kind of talk about the impact of the Fair Housing Act, I want to talk about the problem that it was addressing. So in California, how widespread was housing discrimination? How was it enforced? What did it look like? Well, what, what I'll do is I'll, I'll, take us, I'll take our listeners back to a segment of the documentary that really hits close to home. You know, city of Berkeley passed a fair housing ordinance and the citizens of Berkeley immediately put a referendum on the ballot to overthrow that decision by city council for fair housing in Berkeley. Berkeley was not ready and did not want any type of ordinance for fair housing. They wanted to continue housing discrimination. And this was taking place at the very same time that Byron Rumford was working to pass his statewide legislation. So there's a ballot measure going on in Berkeley to cancel out fair housing in ordinance in Berkeley. And then at the same time, you have the black assemblyman, Byron Rumford in Berkeley, working on a statewide effort for fair housing. I mean, vo- it's like what, what happened in Berkeley kind of foreshadowed the backlash that happened across the whole state. You're absolutely right. The citizens in Berkeley voted it, said, hey, no, we want to continue things the way they are. And shortly after the Rumford Fair Housing Act was passed in 1963, immediately after that, the citizens of California came up with Proposition 14, which uh, passed by two to one margin and in some places a three to one margin. And can you explain what Prop 14 was all about? Proposition 14 was put on the ballot to kill the Rumford Fair Housing Act and to return the state of California into uh, restricted housing. So it basically would make it legal again for people to deny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it it basically wiped out the Rumford Fair Housing Act and and allowed uh, for housing discrimination throughout the state. Here's Byron Rumford. That's right, the man himself, talking about that Prop 14 campaign in an archival interview. They have made California the battleground for the showdown on housing legislation. There was numerous scare tactics which uh, were used to frighten people into voting for this thing. And they felt if they could defeat this legislation here, that uh, their chances of defeating it in other areas was very good. Who were they? Who was behind Prop 14? Well, Ronald Reagan was the front man, and he'd ride that role straight to the governorship in 1966. But the money was coming from the California Real Estate Association, and they were getting support from the National Association of Real Estate Boards. In other words, the real estate industry was leading the fight to keep California segregated. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the way that the supporters of 
Prop 14 framed their arguments because they weren't just coming out and saying we were against this because we're racist, right? They had much more kind of a subtle or coded arguments. So what were the arguments that they were making, at least in the media, about why they opposed the Rumford Act? Well, the biggest argument that was uh, stated by the California Realtors Association was property owners having to write to decide what they wanted to do with their property. And that's a that's a really serious argument in that, you know, if someone works hard for their property and they buy it and purchase it, for them to be able to have a say-so on who they can sell it to. It, it's really a, a really thorny situation when you really look at it. You know, an, another big argument is that if black people invade our communities, it's going to lower our property values. And so you had situations where once the Rumford Fair Housing Act passed and it opened up avenues where black people could move freely, that's when you found a lot of the whites moving to the suburbs. White flight. <laughs> exactly. They, they had the white flight. Dotson Wilson, that former assemblyman who we heard from earlier, he saw this up close. Here's what happened after his family moved to a white neighborhood just north of Berkeley in Albany. I do recall a next-door neighbor. I don't remember his last name, but his name was Tommy. He's my age, right? He's a kid. And I was interacting with him, and then he tells me one day, he goes, yeah, we're, we're going to move. And I said, you're going to move? And uh, I said, well, why are you, why are you moving? I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I might have been like six years old, seven years old. I don't remember the exact age, but I could take you to the part of the street when he said this. And he said, well, my parents don't want Negro neighbors. I mean, that's all I remember, right? And he, he, moved shortly, he moved shortly thereafter. What caused white flight? It's not a simple answer. Sure, there was a lot of personal prejudice involved. But the driving force was really institutional racism. And I'll explain what that means right now. So... White people were incentivized to relocate to newly emerging, segregated suburbs by all kinds of government subsidies. But on the flip side, they were punished financially for not moving out of integrated neighborhoods because when black folks moved in, property values did go down, which wasn't black people's fault, by the way, but I'll get to that in a second. So who's to blame for this? Well. The big players were the federal government, banks, and the real estate industry. They designed a system to reward white people and hurt people of color. The legacy of that system is still affecting all of us. But first, let's look at how this started. A lot of it can be traced back to the Great Depression with the creation of the FHA, Federal Housing Administration, and the HOLC, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. The goal of these organizations was basically to stabilize a very weak housing market by making it easier for people to buy homes or if they already owned homes, pay their mortgages and avoid foreclosure. What they ended up doing was creating a framework of institutionalized racism in the housing market 
that persists nearly a century later. Okay, I'm going to pass this over to a housing discrimination history expert, Ryan Reft. Here's Ryan on the FHA and HOLC. What they do basically is they adopt many of the practices that have been put forth by real estate brokers and banks in the previous decade, meaning they do not like heterogeneity in neighborhoods. And in 1935, the HOLC has a city survey of around 239 cities, including California, and basically rank neighborhoods A, B, C, and D. And uh, D is the worst, and those get what are called redline, meaning you're not going to give loans to them. And they are frequently neighborhoods that have either African-American, Asian-American, Mexican-Latino-American, and sometimes to a lesser extent, recent European immigrants uh, in them. And they especially do not want a mix of groups. So what that means is that when the market starts, when the FHA starts flooding the market, or I shouldn't say flooding, that's probably not the right term. When the FHA starts issuing loans to homeowners, they discriminate against these neighborhoods, which automatically sets up a playing field that the private industry is going to follow, even outside of the FHA loans. So you're going to be limiting those areas, how they can get money in the first place uh, in terms of loans, and you're going to be funneling them into white, basically white communities. The Federal Housing Administration couldn't even really hide behind a financial argument to justify this racism, because their own research showed that blacks weren't any riskier to lend to than whites. But what the system did was set up a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because once a neighborhood was redlined, it was pretty much guaranteed to go downhill. Due to the kind of steering to communities, often, and the fact that you do have like the great migration that occurs beginning of World War I and after World War II, brings more and more African Americans to the city. Uh, but they can only live in certain neighborhoods. So these neighborhoods, these, this housing gets overly crowded as well. Um, and has more wear and tear because it's, there's more people staying there. And yet they can't get the money up through loans to do renovations and upkeep. So there's this kind of reinforcement. So you see these communities decline, but it's not because they're any worse or, or any less capable of taking care of their homes. It's because they're actually under more duress and they're not receiving the same kind of financial assistance uh, or access to credit that these other communities are getting. And that reinforces ideas about African-Americans unable, and other groups unable to take care of their communities. Here's something that Ronald Reagan said in 1966, quote, If an individual wants to discriminate against Negroes or others in selling or renting his house, he has the right to do so. Here's the crazy thing. If you would have asked Reagan if he thought that that was a racist thing to say, he would have said no. And a lot of his supporters would have agreed. It's nothing personal, folks. We're just looking out for our property values. Hmm. 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 Just gonna let that marinate. Throughout his career as a politician, Byron Rumford still worked at the pharmacy when he was in Berkeley. Sometimes he worked alongside his grandson. We worked the store together one-on-one, -on -one, and I got I got an opportunity to meet and understand and learn. And there were times that he would just choose to speak to a person privately on the other side of the store, and I would give him that space, although I was trying to listen quite a bit. I, I always thought I could learn more if I listened to older people. And this one day, he, he was speaking of, of morals and values, and that's all I caught. And uh, the guy actually left, but he, before he left, Grandpa pulled something out of his wallet, 
piece of paper, showed him and put it back. So when the guy left, I said, Grandpa, I heard you guys talking about morals and values. He said, yeah. And I said, um, didn't you pull something out of your wallet? What was that? He said, I'll show you. And he pulls out this check. And the check is dated uh, late 40s. I think it was like 1949. And it was a sizable amount. And I said, what is this? He said, this is a check a lobbyist gave me to vote a certain way on a bill. And I said, wow, and you keep it in your wallet? You had it? He said, yeah. I said, well, why do, you, why do you still carry this in your wallet? And he said, Byron, to remind myself, I cannot be bought. And um, I thought that was phenomenal. That's wow. just wonderful. So he never cashed it? Never cashed it, and it remained there, and I wish I could see it today. Byron Rumford played by the rules, and sometimes it worked. Even though his anti-discrimination law got killed by voters, Prop 14 was eventually ruled unconstitutional by the Supreme Court, and the Rumford Act helped set the stage for legislation that banned housing discrimination at the national level. But here's the thing about playing by the rules. It's hard to win when the whole game is rigged. Laws are meant to be broken. <laughs> and even though those laws went into effect as part of the 1968 Civil Rights Bill, Civil Rights Act, uh, you still find, you know, people having different ways to discriminate. Even today, in 2019, heading into 2020, we still face with discrimination. Where there's a will, there's a way. It's just a tough situation, you know, like for black people and all minorities to get a fair shake when it comes to places that they are qualified and desire to live. If you look back 10 years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, you know, black people had good jobs, good credit scores, and they were given these faulty loans and they got hoodwinked out of their property that they worked hard to get. These are facts. To support Doug's point, here's just one example, and there are many, many to choose from. In 2012, Wells Fargo, the giant bank based right across the bay in San Francisco, had to pay $125 million in damages because they overcharged people of color for home loans and wrongly steered them into subprime mortgages. Look, the fact that people of color were disproportionately targeted for predatory subprime loans, which sunk black homeownership rates during the foreclosure crisis, has been widely reported. And yeah, banks aren't allowed to do that anymore. But the point is that they always find a way to discriminate. There's never been a level playing field. According to some reports, it's getting worse. An hour ago, I googled the phrase housing discrimination 2019. And here's a headline that just dropped, quote, Housing discrimination goes high-tech, how algorithms, ad targeting, and other new technologies threaten fair housing laws. And surprise, surprise, those algorithms that decide whether or not someone will get a loan aren't programmed to be racist. They're just optimized for a housing market that, in many ways, hasn't changed much over the last century. Remember how we talked earlier about how the HOLC created these maps that ranked neighborhoods and redlined the areas where people of color lived? Take a look at the map for Alameda County. I'll post it on my site. What you'll see is stunning. If you look at many of these maps from, 30, from when they did the, the survey in 35, 36, 
Many of them really resemble what the cities look like today. Uh, you know, many of the red line communities are still basically the same today. Uh, they do not, they haven't changed that much, which just demonstrates that this long history of this, it's hardwired in and it's going to take a lot of reform to kind of un, unwind it. Uh, something that has been there since the 1930s, you're not just going to fix uh, with one reform in 2019. Maybe reform isn't what we need. Maybe what we need is a whole new system. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Before I even get to the credits, I want to suggest a few books worth checking out if you want to know more about historical and ongoing housing discrimination. The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, Race for Profit by Kianga Yamada Taylor, and Homewreckers by Aaron Glantz. They're all worth checking out. For a more local focus, read American Babylon by Robert O. Self. Also, I'm going to link to Ryan Reff's really illuminating articles about this topic on my site. So go to eastbayyesterday.com if you want to find those. And if you want to see some really cool photos of the Rumfords and other pioneering East Bay Black families, check out the current exhibit at the Berkeley Historical Society. I'll link to that as well. All right. Uh, a few weeks ago, I put out a call for people to please support the show on Patreon. And so many of you stepped up. The response has been incredible. And I'm going to thank each and every one of my new supporters in the next episode. If you want to be included on that list and help keep this show alive, please go to eastbayyesterday.com and hit the donate link. Whatever you can give, three bucks, five, it's all adding up to help give me more time to focus on making this show. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Also, don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And just so you guys know, I would love to reach more people with this story. So if you could help me out by sharing this episode, I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on Spotify and pretty much all the major podcast apps. And again, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell people about it. Music for this episode came from Lobo Loco and Kevin McLeod. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more stories of East Bay Yesterday. <laughs>